around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2letteru.org. Joining me is the Director for Education and Counseling from Jews for Judaism. Uh, the website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. How are you doing, Jono? Doing very well. Thank you, my friend. Grand to have you back on the program. Uh, of course, we are continuing our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, asking the question, who composed the psalm? Uh, what is it about? What was, the, uh, what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm, and how does that deviate from the original intent? Today, we are up to Psalm chapter 11. It's a short one. The superscription, so it is uh, seven verses, the superscription begins uh, to the chief musician, Psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test, his eyelids, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and the burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Michael. You like that reference to the eyelids of God? I, that's, that's what I've got, at least in this translation. His eyelids test the sons of men. What have you got? That's actually the literal translation. Truly. Um, and it's, it, it's <laughs> it does sound a bit strange. Um, by the way, as <laughs> a secret bonus to all the people listening... Uh, there's there's a very cute quiz um, if you want to drive people crazy. It's to ask them uh, what English word has the letters Y E L in the middle of the word. And there aren't too many, but eyelids and eyelashes are the only two that I can think of. <laughs> but most people will go crazy and not think of it. <laughs> y E L in the middle of a word. Right. Uh, so this psalm is it is short and sweet and. Uh, it does really seem to be a continuation, at least thematically, of Psalm 10. Uh, Psalm 10 really dealt extensively with the problem of why does God allow wicked people to prosper mm -hmm. and to succeed? And, of course, the flip side of the, uh, the righteous people doing okay is usually that the innocent people suffer because, you know, the wicked people, most of what, it, what constitutes their wickedness is what they do to innocent people. So, this psalm uh, seems to really continue exploring that theme um, in terms of how, how, do, how do we understand God's supervision of the world when righteous people do seem to be victimized so often. And there are many ways, I think, of understanding this psalm. First of all, it's clearly a psalm of David, by David, because that's sort of straight away in the superscription. Yep. What's not clear is what's the contextual um, uh, prompting, meaning what, it, what was it that was behind uh, the description here of what's going on. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to be a dialogue. This, this, this psalm seems to be a dialogue between David and others that seem to be advising him to flee from the wicked. That seems to be what's going on, and they go back and forth for a while. Now, let me, can I just pick up on something that you said? If I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that it's a conversation between David and those advising him to flee from the wicked. The reason why I picked that up is because in some translations, uh, it does say, like, for example, I've got my Jewish study Bible here. Uh, how can you say to me, take to the hills like a bird? So take two. But in my, um, in my art scroll, it says, uh, it says, flee from your mountain like a bird. How, how do you like that? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Now, is it from or is it to? 
Well, I think either one is possible, and I'm going to share with you another one that's going to take you by surprise. Uh-huh. Um, so let's first explore those two that you mentioned. Um, some people, and these are based, uh, these are all sourced in the classical Jewish commentaries, Rashi and Radak, mm-hmm. um, and others offer both of those possibilities. One is the advisors here are saying, flee to your mountain like a bird. Because what's, what's happened, it seems, that, is that the enemies have um, expelled, have, have chased David away from wherever he's been. And um, so either the enemy is sort of taunting David and saying, look, get out of here. Um, you know, you're, you're being expelled. You're being kicked out. We've routed you. And now, so get going. Right? Take to the hills mm-hmm. like a bird. Mm-hmm. Flee to your mountain like a bird to your mountain. Meaning get out of here. Um, so this is demand by the enemy. And it could be that the, uh, that the advisors of David, could it be even his friends, so it's not clear who's saying this. It's so interesting that in the previous phrase, how can they, how can they say to me, this is translated in many different ways, mm. how can you tell me, how dare you say to me, how can you say to my soul, how then can you say to me, who's the, the you, who is, who is David speaking to? Mm. So it could be that he's addressing the, the enemy that has expelled him from where he is and has kicked him out and saying, look, get out of here. Go to your own mountain. It could be that these are his friends that are saying, "Look, you're finished, and you know you're you're you've been vanquished, and you better you better get out of town. Mm -hmm. You better run." Or it could be translated, "Flee from your mountain like a bird." Now, I think here what it means is this: Um, the scenario would be that an enemy has come and expelled David from his own mountain, and the enemy is claiming that the mountain is his, meaning that what's happening here is that um, what, what David is protesting is, how can you say to me, flee from your mountain like a bird? What do you mean flee from your mountain? It's not your mountain, David is saying to his tormentors. It's my mountain. So, it, it, <laughs> it does sound like it's... it's um, picking at gnats here. Um, but, but either way, what seems to be going on is that um, David has been either routed or has been attacked, and he's has to essentially leave. He's got to run away. Mm-hmm. And those are two ways that this is seen. Now, an, another very unusual translation, and I think it takes the psalm in a very different direction, um, is what you'll see from Rabbi Shimshon of Hirsch. Who, who reads it like this? How can you tell me that I must flee because your mountain is but a bird? Okay, yeah, I didn't see that how coming. Could you, how could you tell me that I have to run away because your mountain is nothing but a bird? Meaning that here they're using mountain and bird not so much literally but figuratively. And a mountain here is seen as something that's very stable. Mountain is always a symbol of stability. And so, what the accusers or the advisors or the people that David is dialoguing with here, they're saying to him, look, you felt that you were secure in your life. You felt that you were secure physically and you were secure in many other ways. Um, And now they're saying that, look, you obviously have to give in and recognize that that mountain that you were relying on, it's not a mountain. It's actually an illusion um, because it's really nothing more than a bird that has – the bird is the opposite of stability. The bird is something that flits around from here to there. Um, As a matter of fact, the word in Hebrew here, very interesting that they have for – to flee, the, the Hebrew word is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 12, when God says to Cain, he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer, na v'nad, and it's literally the same root here. And you see many times in the scriptures, uh, the metaphor, or the metaphor, the image of a bird that is just wandering and flying around all over the place. Um, this is a, an image of something that's not stable. It's something that has to go from pillar to post. And that's basically what these people are saying to David. 
you know, this mountain of, and again, not a literal mountain, but they're, they're really saying that the mountain here is your trust in God, your trust that God is going to be there for you. They're saying it's an illusion, and you've got to give up your illusion. And David is saying, no, I, I cling to God. I, I've taken refuge in God. How could you say to me that I should give it up? And that seems to be, you know, there are two ways of looking at the psalm. You can look at it very uh, concretely and deal with it as uh, a story, uh, a, a specific story in the life of David. And there, there are many suggestions as to what was, you know, the what prompted this, uh, the sense of David feeling betrayed and his feeling mm-hmm. that he was lost. Um, some of the commentaries say that this is going mainly to the story of his being pursued by King Shaul Saul. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a major, major problem in his life that, you know, here he is in a, in a, a, an important person <laughs> and uh, he's being chased by his father-in-law to the death. Mm. And so, um, some of the commentaries, well, they all really trace this psalm to to that episode in his life where he's um, being chased by King Saul. Some of them actually specifically um, source it in 1 Samuel 23 when the people of the town of Keilah beg David to rescue them from the Philistines. Mm-hmm. And he does. He 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 wants to go, but his men say, "What? Well, we can't go and rescue these people in this town. We're we're running from our lives from Saul." And David says, "We're going to go." And they go, and uh, it seems that the people in Keilah are going to turn him in. They're going to betray him to Saul. So some commentaries say that this psalm is really playing off of that moment, that that uh, episode of treachery from the people of Keilah. Again, but, but it's tied into the bigger story of his his being pursued by Saul's army. And then others say that um, it's just generally speaking about his having to flee from King Saul. Um, one commentary ties some of it into the betrayal by Doeg, when Doeg um, tells Saul that David had been in the city of Nob. All the, these are commentaries all trying to pin down the episode or episodes or general episode of what might have caused David to be in this situation of danger. Can I, can I ask you just a question? I mean, have you, did you come across a, a commentary that might have made the you, uh, as in uh, how can you say to my soul, and the your, flee to a bird from or to your mountain, your, your mountain? Did you come across a commentary that may have uh, put capitals at the beginning of those? In other words, uh, I mean, for example, when we look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The godly run to him and are safe. Is it possibly another complaint by the psalmist um, saying, How can you, God, say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Is, is that a possibility? Or does the context Actually, not bear that out? There, no, there are some who have something similar. For example, if we just jump over for a moment to verse 3, and um, you know, it speaks about the foundations that mm-hmm. are undermined, the foundations being destroyed. Um, now, what is that referring to? So, some again, some people take this psalm on a more concrete, literal level that it's speaking about the wicked people, the enemies, the, the people that are causing damage, that they're causing literal damage to, let's say, um, David's, uh, where his home base was, his fortifications, mm. his city, and they're actually destroying foundations and pillars um, are being undermined and they're being destroyed. That's one possibility. But those who take the psalm more figuratively speak about um, – you know, uh, uh, foundations that are more moral foundations that are being undermined by what? They're being undermined by the fact that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Mm-hmm. So, one of the commentaries, and it's quite amazing, if you go to the last part of verse 3, where it, it seems to say, um, what can the righteous do? Um, or what has the righteous man done? Mm. 
Meaning that um, the way it's often taken is that, you know, here the foundations are being destroyed. What has the righteous man done? Meaning, does he deserve such treachery? Um, but one of the commentaries takes it like this. The righteous one here is God. And it's not the, a righteous person at the end of, the, uh, end of verse 3. But what has the righteous one done? Meaning, all these things are falling apart the you know david is being pursued or the, you know the the you know what's powerful about the psalms is that even though the immediate context is david's situation we all can relate to this we all go through mm. suffering in life we all go through uh tragedies we all go through times and we feel why, why is this happening to us and we feel that the foundations of our own lives are falling apart and we look up and we say, what is God doing? God mm-hmm. seemed, again, like we had in the last the psalm that we did, Psalm 10, we, we look out in frustration and we say, God doesn't seem to be doing anything. What, what's, what's happening? God, again, seems to be asleep at the wheel. So, yeah, there, there are those who take this psalm, um, you know, in that way that, you know, what's going on here is not so much a – a dialogue between people, but and in, 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 this is how I would see it. Actually, what's going on really in, in this psalm, in many, in, on some level, is it's an internal dialogue, either David with himself, or all of us that we go through life, and we are in this conflict. We say, on the one hand, you know, I want to take refuge in God, mm. and yet, and yet. You know, we have this inner voice which is saying, what are you doing? What are you putting so much faith in God for? doesn't seem to be paying off. All the, the good deeds that you do don't seem to be helping you. Um, you know, I think everyone at some point feels this way. Well, I, you know, I, David, yeah, I mean, I, when, when I initially read it, that's the, that's the feeling that I got. And, um, and he's saying, perhaps he's saying to God, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, there's snipers. They're, they're out there. They're, they're aiming at me, you know, at any given moment. Um, what, what, what can be done about this? I, uh, perhaps that's that's the way it's to be taken. Well, I think at least on some level, it's a legitimate way of looking at the psalm. You know, the, the, again, w- the reason the psalms are so incredibly r- rich is because they can be understood on so many different levels. Mm. And I think that you know, it 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 would be, um, I think, ill advised to just reject what might be the literal, straightforward, concrete level of the psalm, which is that it's dealing with David and and events in his life and uh you know it it can be read like that Mm. but i think at the same time it could be read more conceptually as either you know um you know people in his life not necessarily speaking here physically about the need to get out of town and and leave to a different place Mm. um but they're sort of asking him in general david you know you're a righteous person, but look at your life. Look at what's going on. You mm. have so much misery. Your own children are causing so many problems, and your father-in-law, and the, they have enemies. And you know, he doesn't have a moment of peace. And um, you know, people might be saying to him, "What do you? Why do you try so hard to be good? And why do you put so much faith in God? And you know, look, is it is it paying off? Is it?" Does it seem to be helping? It doesn't seem to be helping. You know, God doesn't – and it might not be his friends or colleagues. It may be an inner voice. And I think that the reason that the Psalms are so powerful is that whatever is going on in David's life, we all can relate to it. We can relate to the idea that we have um, or we see. We see a world where – the righteous are suffering and the wicked are getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. And we wonder, you know, and that was the theme of Psalm 10. And I believe it carries over here into Psalm 11 as well. Verse 4 continues, uh, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids, well, his eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Go ahead. Oh, Wow. Well, it, it seems that, you know, in the same way we saw in Psalm 10 that there's a shift. It's so fascinating that there seems to be a shift in the tone, a shift in what's happening here as well in verse 4. 
And we saw that in, in Psalm 10 as well, where there's a shift in the mood, a shift in the tone. Here it seems to be that we're beginning to answer the questions and the complaints and the doubts and the skepticism that were sort of thrown up in verses 1 to 3. Um, I think it, be- it begins to get resolved now in verse 4. That's what seems to be happening. Mm-hmm. Because again, the, 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 the man of faith, the person of faith, struggles between these two poles. On the one hand, I take refuge in God. I trust in God. On the other hand, I am questioning things. I'm wondering, like, what what is going on? I, you know, not that not just that I deserve a different kind of outcome, but the world, the people that are living righteous lives. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the struggle. And now um, the person begins to resolve the psalm. The, the David begins to resolve this this uh, struggle by saying, look, at the end of the day, this is where he's concluding. This is where he's, he's expressing his, uh, his – this is what's way, getting the most weight now. This is going to be the, the inner voice that carries the day because he's saying that um, God is in his holy sanctuary. I don't think for one moment that there isn't a supervisor and there isn't a controller and there isn't an almighty – that is that knows what's going on in the world and and ultimately will make things right. That's the punchline of, of not just Psalm 10, but of Psalm 11. That there's an inner abiding sense that the Almighty is going to make things right. And so it says here that God is in His holy sanctuary. He has His throne in heaven, and He He sees what's going on. He's He knows what's happening. And he's scrutinizing us, and he's uh, watching carefully. There's the word, now, scrutinizing. Yes, uh-huh. inscrutable. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll share with you something that's actually quite uh, beautiful in this uh, verse, in verse 4. It seems that it has uh, a resonating, not resonating, um, uh, 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 the possibility here of, of two different voices, because you'll notice that it seems to be repetitious, that in the beginning of this verse, it speaks about the eternal one is in his holy sanctuary, the eternal um, his, has his throne in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, that seems to be redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it speaks about that um, his eyes behold, meaning that he, he's, his eyes look down. Mm-hmm. And then it speaks about his eyelids scrutinizing uh, mankind. Now, I think you might say, and this is speculative, that um, it, it would go like this, that we speak about the Almighty is in his holy sanctuary, and that might have the impact of he's here with us, just the way the temple is here, and we mm-hmm. speak about the temple as God's sanctuary. And so, that first part of the psalm might be expressing the idea that God's presence is here with us. Mm-hmm. And that's why it says in the first part of in the in the first part of the second part of the psalm that his eyes see. I mean that that, that you have two phrases here: phrase one, phrase two. Mm-hmm. And in the first phrase, it says that God is in His holy sanctuary, which is here with us, and He sees what's going on. It gives you the sense in part one of these two phrases yep. that God's His presence is immediate. And he sees what's going on. Yes. But then it sort of switches and it says his throne is in heaven, which is further away. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the two poles that on the one hand we have a sense that God – as we speak of God's imminence and God's transcendence, that there's a sense that God is with us. And yet on the other hand, sometimes we feel he's way out there. And that's why it speaks about – God's eyes that are looking, that mm-hmm. are beholding, but then it says, it speaks about his eyelids. It's almost as if he's, you know, eyelids cover the eye, and 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 this one c- corresponds to him being up in heaven. So, here, this is the sense, you know, is God really um, watching carefully what's going on? Because it seems that he's just peering through his eyelids, and that he's covering his eyes, He's, he's sort of not really involved with what's going on. So, I think the two parts of this verse speak about the sense, on the one hand, that God's um, 
supervision of this world is clear and we can see it we can mm-hmm. we, we can relate to it it's sort of it's, it's more obvious and then there's on the other hand the sense that you know no i don't really see how god runs the world it, it's not clear to me it seems as if god is really stepping back and not directly involved with what's happening okay. so i think that i think that the 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 psalmist here david is again expressing both views um, but I think what's going to happen is that view number one is going to win out. The sense that, no, God knows exactly what's going on. God is directly involved. And the voice, the inner voice, which speaks about God being more removed and more aloof from the world, um, is going to lose out. Just the way it lost out in Psalm 10. Um, even though that was one of the voices that was expressed, that, you know, where is God? What's going on? Why is he hiding? So I think that that voice, even though it it's here in this psalm and, and it's expressed here, I believe, you know, in a subtle way in verse 4, this, verse 4 is summarizing the two views. I think that the first view is going to win hmm. out. Hmm. On on the other hand, with verse four, when when one is uh, when we are considering something intently, when we're focusing on something, I, I do this. This is my face when I'm mostly listening to you. I've got my eyes, uh, my eyelids tend to squint a little bit, if you like, and interestingly, uh, they do so when I'm looking at something at a great distance. Uh, we tend to squint to to represent what our brain is doing is focusing. And I like the the, the word uh, scrutinize. I think that's that's very good. Perhaps potentially God sees all, but then He may also focus in and consider intently uh, what it is that we're doing. Yeah, because you know one of the images in this psalm, um, I think it was a verse that we skipped in verse two, I believe. It speaks about the wicked person who shoots in the dark, mm-hmm. and so but that seems to try to to. Uh, re- reveal or or uh, uh, imply is that the wicked person is hiding in the dark to carry out their evil acts. Mm. They're standing in the dark and they're shooting because they think that no one sees them. Mm. That's that's the the image of verse the two sniper. that the wicked people exactly they mm. they're hiding and they think that they are concealed and no one can mm. see their evil deeds. And here it's saying no, God sees exactly what's going on. It's interesting that. The, the imagery here is very visual, like, you know, God's eyes and God looking mm, and yeah. God's eyelids and squinting to see clearly. So, um, the language here seems to, you know, emphasize the fact that, you know, we shouldn't think for one moment that God is unaware of what's going yeah. on. No, God is very carefully examining and scrutinizing um, all people. Yeah. And and you you highlighted that fact too uh, last week when we were talking about Psalm chapter ten that it makes that uh, that he observes in, in verse fourteen verse ten uh, but you have seen for you observe trouble and grief um, so yeah there we go now yes verse five the Lord tests the righteous but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates of course the word violence is Hamas Hamas. What an appropriate word. I think so. It's also interesting that Russia <laughs> has mm-hmm. a similar name. Russia in, in Hebrew means evil. Uh, really? I didn't know that. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. I'd- like the, at the Passover Seder, there's the son that's the Russia, um, which really is pronounced Russia. Anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> so many Hebrew words are just bang on (laughs) well certainly this one is absolutely bang on um the lord tests the righteous but the wicked and the one who loves hamas his soul hates so um it's interesting because the the same hebrew word that's used at the very end of verse four um about god scrutinizing Mm -hmm. um the world that's the same word that's used here for examining and scrutinizing and testing the righteous Mm -hmm. Um, so, it's interesting that there are two Hebrew words that might have been used for testing. For example, back in, I think it's in Genesis 22, where God tests Abraham, mm-hmm. it's a different uh, Hebrew word for testing. There the word is nisa, nes. And here it's uh, yivchan. It's interesting that in modern Hebrew, a bechina is an examination if you're in school. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, there are two ways in which this is understood. Some people say what this means is that God watches um, the righteous, meaning that he scrutinizes the righteous uh, in terms of making sure to protect the righteous, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an expression of the fact that God, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of what is said at the end of this verse, that God hates the wicked, but because of God's love for the righteous, he um, examines, he scrutinizes everything about the righteous person's life to make sure that he ultimately will be protected. Mm. But most people go with this, as you translated it, which means that God tests the righteous in the same way that, in a sense, God tested Abraham. And there are a number of reasons why God might do that. Um, first of all, he might test the righteous to, as in the case of Abraham, uh, help actualize a latent potential. I mean that some people, until they go through a uh, testing, there is potential they have inside of them that will never come out. Mm-hmm. And so, one reason that God puts the righteous through um, difficult situations is it, it, it makes them into bigger people. It mm-hmm. brings out potential that is sure. there latent. Um, some people say that, because in, in again, it doesn't apply so much to this word, yivchan, but it, it does apply to the, the cognate word of nisa, which means test as well as banner, a flag. And so, the idea of testing the righteous is to display them to the entire world, that God holds up righteous people as an example to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. and so that's why he, the Almighty might test the righteous. And sometimes the righteous are tested to cleanse them and purify them of their sins. When we go through suffering of any kind, it's a cleansing and a purification from sin. Um, it, it, it strips us of our, you know, let, let's say one element of many sins is arrogance. Mm-hmm. And so, when a person goes through any kind of pain or suffering, it certainly helps reduce the arrogance they have. Um, now, one of the ways that God tests the righteous, and this is one of the themes of this psalm, is that the righteous are tested by having to endure this uh, philosophical conundrum of theodicy, of watching the evil people prosper and seeing righteous people suffering, meaning that when we see a world order that seems to be the opposite of what should be, for righteous people, it's a huge test. Um, wicked people are thrilled when things go well for them. Hmm. But righteous people that see uh, a world where the moral order is decaying, as it said in, in one of the previous verses, the foundations are being weakened and being disrupted mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. destroyed. That's the test for the righteous because that's the exact opposite of the way the righteous person would want to see uh, the world being uh, run. Verse 6, upon the wicked, now this obviously is reminiscent of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion of that cup. Fairly self-explanatory? <laughs> what else should they get? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It, it's actually, yeah, I mean, these seem to be... Um, expressions that, that appear throughout the Bible um, when it describes um, very unpleasant uh, situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but at the, what, what it's saying, it's so interesting that the, the here, this is an expression of the person, the psalmist, King David, understanding that the wicked at the end are going to get their just desserts hmm. and that the, the world is a, a place where accounts are squared. We may not always see it immediately. Again, because if we saw it immediately, uh, there'd be no free will. It would be impossible. Imagine if we lived in a world where every time someone was about to do something virtuous, they'd feel a radiant glow, and as soon as they did something virtuous, there'd be a million dollars deposited into a checking account. But every time someone did something that was uh, immoral, you know, they would develop a horrible pain, and they'd lose half of their bank account. So, there would be no possibility of living with free will because mm. no one would want to do evil. So, we don't live in a world where accounts are squared immediately. And that's what causes this, this 
terrible problem of living in a world where the righteous often suffer and the wicked often prosper, mm. and we scratch our heads. And so, the, the psalm here is ending with that note of confidence that we yes. know that at the end of the day, the wicked are not going to prosper. We may not see it right away, but we know that's going to be their end. So, the, the reassurance of verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance and beholds the upright. Now, I would like to go back, if I may, uh, because we, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we like to, when, when applicable, you know, have a look and see what Christianity might have us believe about each psalm. Uh, there's really not a lot in this chapter uh, by way of uh, cross-referencing to, to uh, the Christian books, uh, the New Testament. However, Michael, in my New King James Study Bible, I do have some study notes, which I found really odd, and I just thought I'd run them by you. Are you ready? Okay. Where it says, from, basically from uh, verse 1 to verse 3, uh, it comments on flee as a bird – where it says, flee as a bird to your mountain. Flee as a bird. I'm just going to read it to you. Here is the uh, contemptuous challenge of the wicked. They are like their father, the devil. <laughs> now, now, we have a cross-reference there to John chapter 8, verse 44. Oh, that's not, that's, uh, not pleasant. That's where Jesus says that the Jews are of their father, the devil. It's it's not only is it the Jews, but uh, it begins in, in John 8, verse uh, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, <laughs> who believed him. Uh, and then he has a go at them and they're kind of uh, saying to him, you know, Abraham is our father. And they say, you know, we were not born of fornication for, for we have one father and that's God. And Jesus says to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me for I, I proceeded forth from him and so on and so forth. Um, but in actual fact, Jesus asserts, you are in fact uh, of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Uh, he was a murderer of them the beginning and so on and so forth. So what the, the New King James study notes seem to be saying in, in the Nelson's uh, study Bible is equating the wicked uh, that David describes in this psalm with, uh, with the Jews. Man, that was it. That was in their comments to which verse? That was in their comments. Well, okay. So it says uh, eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verses one to three. Uh, and oh, I have the same thing. Yeah, I have um, a New King James Study Bible. Mm -hmm. I have the same Bible actually. Oh, okay. New King James Study Bible. So you see, there it says uh, uh, "flee as a bird," and then it says, "Here is the contemptuous challenge of the wicked." They are like their father, the devil, John eight forty four. Wow. Wow. I know. That's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a low blow, as we say. Yeah. That's what I thought. I, and now I, um, uh, I, I just, I don't understand. Because, I mean, the, the funny thing about it, of course, you go to John eight forty four, and you would have thought that there would be uh, at least, you know, in, in uh, most translations, would have included at least the word wicked, um, but there is no such word. It just says, you are of your father, wow. the devil, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But there's no mention specifically of the word uh, wicked. Why Why would, would they seek that as a qualifying verse, if not purely to uh, just denigrate the Jews. It's an unprovoked swipe at the Jews. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah, but not uncharacteristic. Oh, you mean you found that kind of swipe uh, elsewhere? No, generally in, in the history of Christianity. No, it's true, but I'm saying that the, the, the study Bible, I mean, oh, it seems like a... No, you know what? Uh, to be honest... Yeah. yeah, to be honest, uh, I, I, I haven't found those kind of low blows... Um, in the study notes, this is the, uh, this might be, this. I'm, I'm just saying this thinking about it now. Uh, there's been some funny connections uh, and, and comments made uh, that, that are clearly um, slanted. But this, uh, no, I haven't found anything like this in the study notes before. Yeah, because it seems to be quite a stretch to, 
drag that passage from John into this psalm. Hmm, that's what so, I thought. It's, yeah, it's surprising. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess uh, whoever wrote that's going to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, have, and have hot burning coals, hot burning coals with fiery wind. Well, so it says. Uh, that is the, the, the portion of that cup. Yeah. No, that's, that's, brought it on himself. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> unprovoked attack against the Jews. No, it is. It's unprovoked. Anyhow, that's the uh, that's the connection in the New Testament as far as uh, the Nelson's New King, King James Study Bible is concerned. All right. Uh, it also cross referenced uh, in this in this study note Second Corinthians eleven thirteen to fifteen, and what it has in common. Now, this is Paul saying, you know, if someone else comes to you and tells you stuff that isn't what I'm telling you, well, you know, they're, they're a false uh, apostle and, uh, and they're just uh, doing the work of Satan, literally is what he tells them. But Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, what these, these two uh, passages have in common is the theme of a, of a devil or, or Satan and those who work for him, uh, in both of these cases, Jews, and I thought, very interesting, how odd, or rather, perhaps how telling, uh, that the New King James Study Bible uh, would cross-reference this with the word wicked, when clearly David has no such, I mean, I don't, you know, what, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's, it, you know, it, it's going down a path which goes from there to worse. Um, you know, it's it's problematic for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, there's a tremendous uh, difference in the way the, the concept of Satan, the devil, is understood uh, from within the New Testament and from within the Hebrew Scriptures. And so, it's, it's, it's basically a situation where you have two different theologies that share the same word but have vastly different understanding of understandings of what the word means mm. um, so that's one problem that you know the, the, they're operating with a, with a view a concept of the devil of Satan that's just simply not a biblical concept mm -hmm. in, in their view um, Satan is uh, I mean basically a fallen angel that is that leads a, uh, a, a world rebellion against that, God yeah that's that's essentially how it, the, the Satan is seen um, but it's an opposing force to God that has a different agenda than God, whereas um, the, the, the I guess a well-developed theology of Satan is not really in the Hebrew Scriptures, but it certainly um, it can be defended from the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and later rabbinic theology took the the few references in Scripture and basically see Satan as not. Um, an angel that opposes God, because the whole th the, the 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 essential theology of the Hebrew Scriptures is the idea of the unity of God, that there isn't any force in the world other than God. Isaiah says in chapter forty-five that God creates both good and evil. Evil is not coming from some separate entity that operates um, with a different agenda than God. Um, mm. That that's one of the problems that Jewish theology struggles with is, well, why did God allow evil? What is the purpose of it? And there's a tremendous amount of literature that's that that was written to explain, you know, why would uh, evil be something that God tolerates and and forms and creates? Mm. Um, but it's very clear in the Hebrew Scriptures that God is one in the sense that everything emanates from him. Mm. There is no other force or power in the world. And so, what we find in rabbinic teaching is the idea that actually, don't, don't, don't the listeners should not fall out of their chairs, <laughs> that, that in, the, in the book of Genesis, when the world is created, after every day of creation, it says God saw that it was good. Yep. After the entire story, it says God saw everything and God says that it was very good. Mm. So, so, the sages of the Talmud say very good 
that refers to either the, the sages say it refers to death is very good and others say that it refers to the evil inclination which basically is identified with satan with satan so here you see the rabbinic sages are saying that satan is very good it's it's really the greatest blessing that we have and so it i mean it's a long discussion but basically the idea is that um, in scripture, we see that the word Satan simply means uh, opponent or obstruction or, or obstacle. Hmm. Uh, you see it in the story of Bilaam. Yeah. Um, Numbers chapter, chapter 22, I think. 22. So in chapter 22, verse 22, it speaks about the angel that God sent to be a Satan hmm. to Bilaam, meaning to obstruct him. They wanted to get in the way. And so the concept of Satan in Jewish thinking is that it's anything in the world that basically obstructs our spiritual progress. And that's why the rabbinic sages identified that with the inner adversary that we each have in our lives, meaning that it's not so much seen as some uh, external force that runs around the world as a, as a, a creature, hmm. but it, it's primarily something that lies deep down inside each one of us, that we have a, a, a part of who we are that, um, that demands we pay attention to it, uh, and it's, it distracts us from what we really should be doing. There's, a, there's an inner voice which says that um, I want to be selfish, and I, I, I want to think of myself first, and I, I want to indulge in physical pleasure. And, um, you know, I, I want to be greedy and I want to be arrogant. There's a, there's a part of every human being that has pride mm. and it's a normal, normal feeling. And so all of these inner aspects of who we are need to be worked on. Mm. And so each person, and we're all different. I mean, there are people, I mean, I have a friend that once was addicted to gambling and I saw how it really controlled this person's mm -hmm. life. I, I have no such interest. I mean, I don't, I don't see what is attractive about gambling at all. So it's not my challenge. But each one of us has their challenges. Mm. And that when we overcome these challenges, we become bigger people. We grow spiritually. And so the idea is that there's a force in this world that allows each of us to grow by overcoming it. Mm -hmm. in, in a gym, the way you develop your physical muscles is by overcoming resistance. Mm -hmm. If you just pick up a piece of paper, you're not going to get muscles. You need to pick up 20 pounds, 50 pounds, 100 mm -hmm. pounds, whatever it is. And so spiritually, this, this, this satanic force, this obstruction force is anything in the world that gets in the way of my spiritual progress. And it's good because it allows me to grow. If I right. lived in a world where there was no challenges and no, uh, no obstructions, if, if, if life was so simple and there were no temptations, um, nothing that was getting in my way, no obstructions, um, I wouldn't have any opportunity to grow. Hmm. There'd be no, no opportunity to, for virtue in a world where there's no temptation. So we see this force is ultimately good because it allows us to grow and to um, really become virtuous through overcoming this obstacle in life, these obstacles. Mm. Yep. Um, now, so, why, 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 why this commentary would identify you know this evil force, you know, primarily with the Jews. Um, you know, I, I can only imagine. It's curious, isn't it? It's it's very bizarre. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that uh, perhaps they do identify this as uh, David fleeing from Saul. Uh, therefore, you have uh, Jews that are opposing David in the same way that the New Testament uh, paints certain Jews as opposing Jesus, and therefore that's where they want to um, uh, make the connection. But there is no such connection explicitly in the study notes. Uh, I found it curious. Yeah, I would say. Mm. You know, when, when I sat for a few minutes after studying this psalm and asked myself, um, is there any connection in this psalm to Christianity? Mm. 
um, I, I really realized a few things. Number one, um, I would ask myself, well, where is Jesus in this psalm? Meaning that if if the entire thrust of the Hebrew Scriptures was to point to Jesus mm-hmm. and to and to get us to understand Him, um, I don't think there's anything in this psalm that points to Jesus. I don't see Jesus here at all. Um, I don't think I see the gospel in this psalm. As a matter of fact, um, you know, at least the way many Christians understand their gospel. Um, is that human beings are irredeemable. Human beings um, are incapable of Mm. being righteous. Um, Human beings are incapable of doing righteous deeds that would be pleasing to God. Um, Many Christians point to Isaiah chapter 64, where it says all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Mm. Um, So there is this theology that they have that there's nothing that human beings can do that can be seen as virtuous. And yet in in, chap, in uh, verse 7 here, it says that God is righteous and God loves righteous deeds. Um, so it, it speaks here in this psalm many times about the righteous and the wicked. The psalm here, and this comes up throughout the psalms, I'm going to say this until I <laughs> get dizzy. Um, but throughout the Psalms, throughout the book of Proverbs, throughout so many books of the Bible, it contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Mm. And it, it literally is a stark refutation to the theology, which says that, no, there are, it's impossible to be righteous, that human beings are lost without an attachment to Jesus. And so here, this Psalm is speaking very clearly about there are those who are righteous, there are those who are wicked. Mm. And not just that there are righteous people, but that God loves the righteous deeds. God loves the deeds of these people. So what we have to do is try to understand what's really going on in Isaiah chapter 64. Um, I mean, it, it basically, it's, it's not a um, blanket statement. It's not a generalization statement about how all human beings are. That particular passage is basically a confession by certain people that are talking Mm. about their own failings. But as a moral statement about the nature of mankind, of course it's not. Because we see that there are righteous people and we see that God loves the deeds of righteous people. Mm. God loves their righteous deeds. So I would think that this psalm in many ways does address some of the major claims of Christian theology. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's very fair. Well, I think we've exhausted it. That's uh, Psalm chapter 11. Thank you, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skoback of ChooseForJudaism.ca. That's the website, ChooseForJudaism.ca. That's Choose for Judaism in Canada. Um, next week, Psalm chapter 12. God willing. Yeah. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Vandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel Tour. Details at our website, truthtoyou.org. That's truth, number two, letter U.org. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.